The first rule of Fight Club, don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of being in a drawdown is all you think about is the drawdown. Your entire, and so like, it, again, we're just human beings and we have to accept that and acknowledge that and realize that this game is hard. We're not gonna achieve our long-term strategic investment objectives overnight. So let's just make a consistent series of good decisions along the way so that we can, you know, put ourselves in the best position for success. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long-term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro, to discuss his approach to managing his personal investment portfolio. Darius follows his own macro research style of investing where he looks to determine if the economy is growing or slowing, and if we are in an inflationary or deflationary environment. As macro conditions change, certain asset and investment classes will be actively managed and represented in his portfolio over time. Darius walks us through his systematic macro approach to investing and why it works for him. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Hey, Darius, how are you? Wonderful, man. How you doing, Justin? Good, man. Good. Thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure, man. Appreciate the content you guys are putting out and thanks again for having me on. We've been talking to um, investors like yourself and others about unique strategies and the way that they go about um, managing their personal portfolio and their perspectives on the market, and also how they think about their investing goals and their portfolio positioning and construction. Um, you know, you have a unique sort of systematic macro framework that we'll get into and that we'll talk to. Um, but we want what we want to do is sort of talk through how that translates into an actual portfolio. Um, and also talk through sort of how you view that in terms of getting to and accomplishing your long-term investing goals. So that's going to be sort of the framework that we'll follow with, with, the with the conversation today, which I think is going to be a fun one and an interesting one, because it's always good to get people with different, unique sort of perspectives on how they view investing in the markets over, over time. Um, but to start, before we get to all the nitty gritty fun details. Um, we wanted to ask you about sort of just your long-term goals in investing. When you think about your investment portfolio and what you hope to achieve with it, um, how would you sort of summarize what your long-term goals are? Oh, that's an excellent question. Because to me, I think there's not enough time uh, in, in sort of the sphere that we operate in, which is sort of, you know, financial educators, financial teachers of helping the client, the end user, the subscriber, the, you know, the, you know at the end of the day, the person whose money you're managing, you're helping uh, to manage. We don't spend enough time helping them understand their own investment objectives, right? And so I'm really glad we sort of open with this because, you know, what's appropriate for me, Darius Dale, you know, someone who's 35 years old may not be appropriate for client ABCUs in their late fifties or early sixties, or maybe someone who's 25, who has a much different, you know, time horizon and income spectrum. So I do believe it's very important for all investors to understand exactly what it is that they are trying to achieve when they interact with services like mine or money managers, et cetera. So to answer your question specifically on my set, you know, I grew up very poor. So my, my number one thing I, I, I think about when I'm putting capital to work at, at risk in financial markets is, you know, to not lose it. Um, you know, I don't want to go back to the poor house. Um, it's not particularly fun. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, having had that life experience, you know, I'm very cognizant of drawdown risk and volatility drag. Those are probably the two number one things that I think I do well in terms of my skill set and, and, and where my focus is from a portfolio construction perspective and ultimately in terms of my investment objectives. If I can compound, you know, to let's call it seven to 10% returns in perpetuity with limited drawdown risk, that's fantastic. Some people might want 30 to 40, 50% a year and are comfortable with suffering 30, 40, 50, you know, look at crypto 70, 80% drawdowns along the way. And that's fine. Um, with my overall net worth, that's not acceptable. Um, and so, but again, this is just, that's how I view the markets. You know, I'm a kind of a slow and steady wins of the race kind of guy, as opposed to someone who eats to be super long beta, super long high beta. Um, there are times in the cycle, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk to, uh, in, in a few minutes here, but there are times in the cycle where you do want to be leaning super long beta. And we certainly built a very sophisticated, very robust process for helping investors do that. Uh, it just may not necessarily be something that I'm comfortable with at every interval of the entire investment and market cycle. Yeah, I think you bring up two very important points. The one is that everyone's situation is different. 
your situation is different than mine. That's different from the person that's, you know, viewing this, watching this. Um, they could be at a different point in their life. And also sort of those formative experiences early on, you, you know, your family not having a lot of money. I, you know, my family didn't really have a lot of money either. I think back to Benjamin Graham when he lost everything in the depression and that he focused on margin of safety. So those early experiences we have as investors or even in life sort of can stay with us and influence our investing philosophy. Absolutely. And one quick thing to, to bring up on that. It's not just us in terms of our old trying to achieve our own uh, our investment objectives. Think about everybody else in the market has these same, you know, formative experiences that, you know, kind of attack or help them formulate how they attack and approach markets. So, you know, when you're trying to think about positioning, thinking about sentiment, you know, you, it's not this monolithic thing, this investor consensus There's, you know, Darius, Jack, and Justin, and we all have three different ways of viewing the world and viewing markets. This may seem like a little bit sort of a weird question, but we, we like to ask it just as we like to hear people's perspective. Like when you think of, and you've got, you know, decades until retirement. Um, but when you think about yourself in retirement, do you have a bit, hopefully only two, <laughs> do you have a, do you have a, a, a vision or uh, something you sort of see yourself doing or not doing in retirement? Uh, probably a lot of the same stuff that I'm doing now. Just I'll wake up at a much more reasonable hour <laughs> and end at a much more reasonable hour. I love what I do, man. Uh, you know, I think this, this game that we play financial markets, you know, the, certainly the sphere that I'm in, you know, global macro, you know, racket risk management strategy, portfolio construction, asset allocation, that stuff. I mean, to me, it's just like putting together this fantastic jigsaw puzzle that's never ending. You know, you get clues here and there and it's, you know, it's just a fun game. So, uh, in my retirement, I don't really expect to do anything other than trade and kind of, uh, keep up with the markets, but, um, certainly at a, at a much lower uh, intensity than I'm currently doing. On the issue of you waking up, don't you wake up at 4 a.m., I think you say on Twitter? Is that right, every day? 4.30. 4.30, yeah, 4.30. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, I have to do that sometimes, but it's because a three-year-old is screaming at me. <laughs> it's not to start running my systematic process. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, I guess I'm getting, I'm getting good practice. Uh, so I don't have any kids now, but I'm sure I'll have kids in a couple of years. So <laughs> I'm getting good practice. Before we get into your portfolio, I want to start at a high level. And for, for anybody who wants to understand your macro process, we did another full episode, another full hour with you. We won't get to cover everything here, but, and you can find that on our YouTube channel. But before we get into your, the process in detail, I wanted to see if you could talk about it at a high level. So we talked in the previous interview about your regime segmentation process, about this idea of changes of growth and inflation. And I wonder if you can just talk to that a little bit and how that translates into building your personal portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we don't have to spend too much time on it. I'll refer the, uh, the viewers and listeners back to that original episode. Certainly come check out our YouTube channel or 42 Macro if you want to get more information on the process. But you know, I'll be quick. And just in terms of like thinking about the world, you know, asset markets are, you know, from our perspective, in terms of the back test that we've done, you know, you know, you know, that spans several decades, you know, going back to the 60s, 70s, pick your asset class. You know, it's very clear that asset markets, the primary driver of dispersion within and across asset markets are changes in growth and changes in inflation. And more importantly, especially in this most recent kind of 12 years or so, you know, how central banks are reacting to those changes in growth, changes in inflation, and more importantly, you know, especially with respect to this market cycle, the level of growth and a level of inflation has to really come into question as well. So it's our job as an investor, and certainly our, our process is really oriented around understanding the trending rates of change of those variables and forecasting the trending rates of those rates of change of those variables in order to identify sort of what regime we might be in. Uh, you know, that in, in, in kind of the best of times, you know, we're what we call Goldilocks at, at 42 macro through the lens of our grid, grid model grids short for Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, and deflation. Uh, Goldilocks is where growth is accelerating and inflation is decelerating. You tend to have outsized, you know, excess returns and equities and credit, crypto, you know, risk assets in general. Uh, reflation is where both growth and inflation are, are accelerating simultaneously. You tend to have outsized excess returns in those asset classes, including commodities as well. This is where fixed income tend to, tends to have most of its negative absolute uh, performance. Then you also have what we call inflation. That's where growth's decelerating and inflation's accelerating. Uh, you tend to have negative, uh, you know, sort of absolute returns and risk assets. You know, the, the performance across fixed income markets tends to be mixed. You know, typically when you're above, you know, call it four or five percent inflation, you're going to have negative absolute returns in fixed income. When you're below that threshold, you tend to have uh, 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 inverse covariance to the equities uh, in that asset class. And then lastly. Uh, deflation. That's where both growth and inflation are trending lower. Um, this is about the, the, the asset class. That's the sort of regime where the concept of the 60-40 portfolio really got its got going in terms of the inverse covariance you tend to see in stocks and bonds in that in that regime. And so uh, understanding 
how asset markets have historically performed both on a relative and absolute basis across some very critical features, including expected returns, percent positive ratios, volatility, and covariance is really critical and, and, and sort of a foundational to how we think about managing risk and constructing portfolios. So again, to kind of summarize, we need to know where we've been and where we're headed from the perspective of that grid regime cycle and ultimately how asset markets have historically behaved through again, you know, expect the returns, percent positive ratios, volatility, covariance in order to understand, Hey, what are the types of securities, asset classes, factors that will come together in a, in a, in a more, you know, kind of in an elegant way to help take advantage of our forecasts, you know, forecast for the, for the economy. And that sort of gets into my next question, because one of the common, common wisdoms you'll see out there is, you know, just get your 60, 40 portfolio, tuck it away. Don't be active. Don't change anything, you know, come back in 40 years and you'll be great. And we've kind of had a period where the 40 or the 60, 40 portfolio had one of its best periods in history over the last 40 years or so. And I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about why that approach, you know, when you think about your personal portfolio, why that 60, 40 approach may not be as positive going forward as it has been in the past 40 years. Yeah. I mean, so look, I mean, so much of the, the terms associated with the, the 60, 40 portfolio, you know, kind of came alive in an era of disinflation, uh, an era of, you know, peak globalization. There's a lot of good stuff that happened that made that, you know, sort of kept the structural underlying trend of inflation down in order to kind of, you know, help perpetuate those kinds of returns. Um, and more importantly, you didn't, you know, in terms of the drawdowns you saw, uh, you know, they, they're unlikely to be as uh, they're sort of the drawdowns we're experiencing today in the 60, 40 portfolio, for, for instance, is significantly higher than the drawdowns we're used to in that particular asset class. Because again, I believe, and I think a lot of other investors believe we're in a higher inflation regime that is likely to be persistent for some years. Um, and so in terms of, you know, my, my thought process on 60, 40 is again, even at its face value in a disinflationary regime, you still have some, you know, pretty sizable drawdowns and volatility drag uh, in that strategy. If you don't understand, you know, kind of where you are in the cycle. I mean, you know, 2008, obviously is kind of one of the biggest moments in most investors careers in terms of remembering that, but you had several drawdowns, you know, throughout the 2020s, um, you know, sort of throughout the 2010s and, you know, 2000s, you know, 2000 to 2002, 2018, obviously 2011, you know, you had quite a few um, of these episodes where you know, if you, you time the markets wrong, or if you, you know, you, you, you allocated too much to 60, 40 at the wrong time, and that's, it didn't necessarily have a, a macro risk management view that can get you into more cash, you know, you suffered some pretty significant drawdowns and, it, and it's hard. I mean, all this, but, you know, we talk about the, the back testing and the history of buy and hold and 60, 40, and we see all those statistics, right? But what I don't see enough statistics are what happens when your portfolio goes down 20% and, you know, the, the length of time it takes you to recover and you know, trying to fight back and claw back to, to break even or high watermark. And the reality is we don't spend enough time as, as investors understanding those dynamics and how that puts you on a very different path, um, to achieving your financial objectives over the long term. So to answer your question specifically, Jack, it's just not for me, you know, the drawdowns associated with that strategy are, are too far too great for anything that I'm personally comfortable with. Somebody else might be very comfortable with that. Um, you know, but in my opinion, I just think, you know, there's a better way to do risk management, which is. Hey, if you, you want to be long stocks, be long stocks at the particular point in the interval, in the grid regime cycle, where it tells you to be long stocks. And if you want to be long fixed income, then reallocate out of stocks and allocate out of fixed income. You don't have to be long everything at all times, because again, being long everything at all times exposes your overall portfolio to higher units and higher degrees of, of realized volatility than you otherwise might uh, be able to sidestep. Yeah. Well, one of the important points you make, and this goes back to what you talked about at the beginning about each for each person having a portfolio that's right for them is this issue of behavior is so important. And, you know, you talk about how drawdowns are really important to you as somebody who drawdowns are really important to like, this is a very sensible process to run. Like, you know, for somebody who can just take 50% drawdowns and it's not even a big deal and they hold for 40 years, you know, someone in VC or something like that, you know, it could be a different thing. And, you know, that, that's a huge part of what's right for you is, is sort of your own mental makeup and how you can withstand declines. Jack, you and I both know those people don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> that is probably true. <laughs> Let me joke on Wall Street, but like even institutional investors panic sell the loads, right? You know, like pension funds, asset allocators, you know, these people in, who invest in these longer term uh, asset classes like venture capital, angel investing, et cetera, still wind up having, you know, uh, causing outflows at the lows of these, these market cycles. And so, you know, we're all human, like, look. None of us would have a job, me, you, Justin, like we would not have a job if the average investor had the ability to just invest and go away 10, 20 years and come back and look at their statement. There's something called behavioral heuristics 
and a myopic loss aversion and prospect theory that all prevent us all from doing that very simple thing. And because we are prevented from doing that very simple thing, literally by the makeup of our DNA and how our brains operate, we must engage with people who can help us minimize that volatility and drawdowns. I'm not certainly saying we've, you know, figured out the atom. We've cracked open the atom here at 42 macro. I think we're getting close, um, to be fair, but, um, you know, I, you know, to the extent that we are, we're not, I still think there's a better way to do this, just given the constraints of us all being human beings and not being able to, you know, kind of, um, you know, be Warren Buffett. The reality is we're all on finance, Twitter, we're all listening to finance podcasts. We're all prone to making decisions, checking our statement, repositioning, et cetera. And so if we're going to be making those, those, those high frequency decisions, let's make good high frequency decisions is all I'm trying to say. It's funny, you know, that's probably one of the most important takeaways here is, is like our own ability to be honest with ourselves about the drawdown we can actually take. Because, you know, one of the things we've tried to do with clients we manage money for is, you know, we try to upfront say like, you know, here are the bad things that can happen with this particular portfolio. Here are the drawdowns. And, you know, inevitably it'll say, oh yeah, that 50% drawdown, that's no problem for me. I'll, I'll be perfectly fine during that. Like looking back at 2008 and seeing that things came back, you know, but living in the moment of those drawdowns, like it's very, very hard, even for people like us that are very, you know, that are, live in this business. It's very, very hard to say, like, live in that moment of that 50% drawdown and say, am I going to do something stupid? You know, it's just so hard to do it. Oh, it's hundred percent, man. It, it is. When you're in the middle of a drawdown, all you think about is the drawdown. You know, it's like, it's like the first rule of fight club. I'm talking about fight club. The first rule of being in a drawdown is all you think about is the drawdown. You're entire. And so like, it, again, we're just human beings and we have to accept that and acknowledge that and realize that this game is hard. We're not going to achieve our long-term strategic investment objectives overnight. So let's just make a consistent series of good decisions along the way so that we can, you know, put ourselves in the best position for success. We've done these episodes. We've typically put like a little pie chart in of the, of the person's asset allocation. And we may not be able to do that here because I know yours is sort of changing over time, but I'm, I'm just wondering this sort of a... Actually just tweeted it out. <laughs> well, it's not, it, I tweeted out with blurred, uh, no, you, you don't see it. <laughs> with the blurred, so we may have to put the blurred part, pie chart in here this time. But yeah, you can see the asset. But I'm just wondering, you know, and I don't want you to give away anything that you're, you know, is, is proprietor to subscribers, but just in general, like if we were to look at your asset class allocation at a time like now, like what, what asset classes would be in there and, and kind of what would be the thought process of, of sort of getting to those asset classes? Yeah. So that, that, that is, uh, that kind of opens the, uh, kind of, um, Pandora's box on the actual process we use. So, uh, what we're trying to do it again, as I kind of alluded to, we want to understand kind of units of risk you know, across the asset classes and, and, and sort of, um, both across asset classes and within asset classes, again, through the lens of volatility and covariance. And then we want to understand potential reward through the lens of expected returns and percent positive ratios. And, you know, sort of, we help one thing we do, I think at a, at a very high level, um, you know, is, is help investors visualize the relationships between different asset classes, spatially in terms of those units of risk and units of reward. And so, um, understanding that within asset classes for first, we understand, Hey, we're in regime A, B, C, or D, G, R, I, or D, and going to, you know, you know, over the next three to six months, you know, the next six to 12 months, we're going to be heading from regime G, R, I, D to regime G, R, I, D. And if we stay in this, great. If we don't, you know, we got, what do we have to sell and buy along the way as a function of the changing kind of, um, you know, you know, uh, volatility and changing, you know, units of risk and units of reward. And so, you know, that that's kind of where we start from a overall asset allocation perspective, which is I should have, you know, roughly X amount of Z based on the historical kind of dispersion across and, and within asset classes in fixed income, in stocks, you know, in uh, commodities, et cetera. And so that's kind of where we start. And then from there, we do it from a bottom-up perspective as well. Okay, you know, let's say I, I kind of want to have, you know, generally target 15, 20% commodities in, in reflation or inflation. Well, what, you know, what comprises that 15 to 20%? Well, you know, from a uh, system, from a, from a back testing perspective, let's say, let's just pick on crude oil here. Crude oil suggests, you know, this is a, one of those things. Well, we pop it into the portfolio. Let's say, okay, yeah, we're good. We're comfortable being long the risk that is uh, crude oil exposure. When we pop that into the portfolio, we don't just lick our hands and say, hey, well, this should be a 5% position, 10% position. You know, I don't think that's a particularly, um, you know, thoughtful way to manage risk. What we do is we use what we call our volatility adjusted position sizing process, which ranks all the various exposures we pop into the portfolio through the lens of trailing three-year semi-variance, which is the volatility of, of downside deviations. And, you know, the, the, the positions or the, the exposures that have a high degree of semi-variance relative to the sample tend, are the smallest positions, the 3% positions, the exposures with um, the low degree of semi-variance relative to the, to the sample, you know, the sample of the actual exposures in the portfolio have the 9% positions, and then those in the middle have the 6% positions. And so 
based on this process of set of top down saying, Hey, I generally want to target. And there's some, you know, subjectivity to this. I generally want to target based on how stocks, bonds, commodities, et cetera, crypto have traded in this asset class, X, Y, Z to the asset class A or B. And then based on, you know, that kind of, you know, bucket or sleeve, I'll go from the bottom up perspective and say, Hey, look, well, crude oil generally tends to, based on these kind of uh, factors from a backtesting perspective, crude oil is a better commodity exposure than wheat. So let's go, let's go along crude oil and then the volatility adjusted position sizing process will take that over. So would the portfolio look like just a, maybe a series of ETFs to sort of represent these broader asset classes? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I try not to get too exotic. I mean, quite frankly, I don't have time to manage exotic risks and also publish research and all this other stuff. So that's one constraint, but also uh, understanding that we have, you know, investors all across the investment spectrum, right? We have clients who manage trillions of dollars, you know, across various, you know, asset classes. We have clients who, you know, run tens of thousands of dollars in their own personal account, right? At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is kind of, you know, create signals and create actionable tools for investors um, that they can express and, and trade without having to have a PhD in finance or, you know, without having to have access to the most sophisticated trading systems, et cetera, et cetera. So generally speaking, you know, we're along ETFs, uh, you know, we're long ETFs. Sometimes we'll go short ETFs or, you know, may go uh, long options or something like that. But generally speaking, it's, it's more on the vanilla side of, of things in terms of the, the actual vehicles we use to express our trades. But as you know, I mean, holy cow, I've been very proud of this just as a retail investor and someone who does what I do for a living, the, the breadth of ETFs in terms of like the, you know, kind of the exposures you can, can, uh, you get access to in the ETF marketplace and the strategies you can get access to in the ETF marketplace are, are fantastic and growing uh, pretty tremendously. So I'm really proud of that. And it makes my job a hell of a lot easier in terms of constructing thoughtful portfolios. Yeah, to your point, I mean, the things you can do with ETFs now, it's pretty amazing. How granular do you get with that? So in other words, inside of bonds, are you high yield and corporates and, you know, government and, and then maybe inside of stocks, you know, do you think about like momentum and value ETFs and things like that? I mean, how granular do you like to get? Yeah, very, very extremely granular. So again, we've, I mean, if it ticks, from a factor expected, uh, factor exposure perspective, we have back tested it. And so at the end of the day, we, in going back to that kind of process where we're trying to, you know, spatially identify units of risk on a relative basis to the things within and across asset classes and units of reward, we understand that at the factor level. So within stocks, you know, growth versus value size versus momentum, you know, small caps versus consumer discretionary, you know, all the way down to, you know, the, the, the industry level at the at the factor uh, level as well, within fixed income across different sectors of fixed income, convertible bonds versus muni bonds, you know, short duration muni bonds versus long duration muni bonds. Like, you know, if we can find that exposure represented uh, by ETF, or at least, you know, quite reasonably, uh, then we will, you know, kind of include it in that overall kind of portfolio construction process, that soup to nuts process where we're starting with, hey, where we are from a great perspective, where are we going? Let's understand risk versus reward. And then from that, from that, we can sort of start to allocate um, to the various exposures based on their relative projected, you know, risk and reward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things people find challenging with their personal portfolios a lot of the time is rebalancing. And, you know, so you have a some systematic process, so it might be a little bit easier for you, but how do you think about that in terms of like how often to rebalance? I'm, I'm assuming, you know, you probably could rebalance every day because your, your data is changing, but I'm sure, sure you don't. So I'm wondering how, how do you think about that? Like how often to rebalance and how to, how to balance that when you think about your personal portfolio? Yeah, great. And so, uh, one thing we haven't even mentioned, I run all of my liquid assets with this 42 macro portfolio construction process. There's no deviation from what you'll see in my portfolio than what our subscribers see on the screen in terms of the changes we're making. So, um, you know, when I talk about these things, I'm literally making every single change, uh, in my own portfolio. You know, I believe in uh, kind of eating what you cook, you know, I believe in what I do. I think I'm really good at what I do. And I, you know, I, I, you know, quite frankly, I wouldn't sell it to someone if I didn't think it was something that's worth uh, me doing for myself, but in terms of rebalancing. You know, one of the things that we do here as well, in terms of helping investors kind of manage immediate term risk, because again, the portfolio construction process, the portfolio is designed to sort of take advantage of medium term risk, let's call it somewhere between three and nine months on a rolling four, three to nine month forward basis. That's kind of like our sweet spot in terms of our grid regime forecasting accuracy, in terms of our ability to understand the, you know, Fed reaction function, et cetera, et cetera. So like kind of one to three quarters, um, in terms of the, you know, shorter term risk management and rebalancing. You know, we run what we call our probable range process that's associated with our volatility adjusted momentum signal. And when things get overbought, oversold across different asset classes, I think that's an appropriate time to be taking down or taking up risk. Um, generally speaking, I, I don't deviate from the actual target exposures because what I'm really trying to do is just capture the overall return of this sort of, you know, kind of, you know, elegantly constructed portfolio. 
but sometimes things will go, you know, super overbought or super oversold. For instance, you know, recording today uh, on, on, on Thursday, September 1st, and most risk assets, including actually, no, uh, fixed income is also quite oversold. So a lot of things are oversold. Some things are more oversold than others. So, you know, if you're going to be, you know, kind of allocating and rebalancing, you know, you can take it, take advantage of some of those, those signals relative to something like, you know, for instance, the U.S. dollar, which is, you know, extremely overbought. So uh, that, in my opinion, I think we, you know, when I think about rebalancing, it's more opportunistic um, unless something gets, you know, extremely out of whack on a kind of, you know, one week or two week basis. And then I'll kind of just try to get it back in line. But generally speaking, I'm trying to stick to those, to those uh, volatility adjusted position sizing targets. Cause that, that, that's been drawdowns. Yeah. To me, this is, this is one of the most challenging things in running systematic portfolios. Cause you know, we do as well Is like, you're, you're always seeing these changes in terms of all your rankings and your scores. And it's like, when do we trade and when do we not trade? It's a, you know, there's no perfect way to do it, but I don't mean, you have a very sensible way to do it. But to me, this has always been one of the toughest things about running systematic portfolios. Yeah. And the good thing is, you know, so our, our portfolio target weightings don't change very much unless we, of course, we change the entire sample. You know, we add something or take something from the sample, then the relative semivariance within the sample in terms of the percentile rankings will change. But like on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, if I don't change the portfolio in terms of the, the exposures featured, you know, those, those things aren't going to change. You know, the trailing through your semivariance is not something that's going to be swinging around on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. So that, that's, a good, that's a good thing. You talked about some commodities you own uh, earlier. What other types of alternatives do you use in your portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. So great question. So if I can understand it as an investor, then I'm comfortable with that exposure to the extent that it's been gone through the ringer from the perspective of our, you know, portfolio construction process. It's something, it's an exposure that I, you know, can back test and understand based on our grid regime, based on our forecast for things like policy, et cetera. So uh, one mistake that I made this year, I think is a great learning experience, which is, you know, we were long, our friends over at Simplify, uh, have a managed future strategy ETF called CTA that is the ticker. Uh, we were long that it was, you know, performing quite beautifully. Uh, and then it had a, a pretty sizable drawdown kind of over, you know, over the, you know, very short period of time. I think it was, you know, basically down like four or 5% in like two or three days. And I'm like, man, I don't really understand this. Cause I thought when I looked at the, the, the exposure, you know, we were, it was a managed future strategy. So, you know, at the time it was, you know, long, short dated treasury bonds, it was long commodities or, you know, something like that. I, I'm just making this up because I, I don't remember exactly what, but. You know, it was, it was thing, it was exposed, it was long exposures that I was comfortable with based on our, our, our portfolio construction process. And then obviously, you know, it was either stopping out or getting out or reversing a lot of trades and, you know, kind of the, um, the drawdown fed upon itself. And so at that moment, I'm like, well, I don't really understand what's happening. I'm not running the managed future strategy. I'm just along the output of the managed future strategy. So that's an example of something where, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't really fully understand what it is that I was long, or more importantly, I didn't understand how it could change on me you know, kind of in real time, you know, on the ground. And so, you know, that's kind of an example of something where that's a little bit too much of, 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 of a black box where we won't put into the portfolio construction, you know, kind of having learned that lesson. But generally speaking, I mean, if there is an exposure that is a kind of a singular exposure, like, you know, again, long-term treasury bonds or, you know, high yield credit, you know, stuff like that, that's a factor that we can back test that we can understand and ultimately kind of can uh, profit from and position for. This is usually the point in the interview where I ask someone if they're, if they've changed their process uh, to account for inflation, but obviously your process itself is accounting for inflation. So I, I don't want to ask that, but I, I do want to ask you around, you know, one of the things I think a lot of investors have struggled with is sort of what to own in an inflationary period. Um, you know, obviously commodities have done very well this year, but a lot of tips ETFs have actually not done that well. Um, I'm wondering, you've studied this a lot. I'm wondering, what do you think, like, what is in your portfolio to help combat inflation? Like, what do you think the best assets to own in an inflationary environment are? Yeah. So generally speaking, I mean, when you're in a high inflation, let's talk about what high inflation means, right? Like well, certainly relative to the disinflationary regime we're, we're, we're coming out of. And when you have high inflation, you know, we, I, you know, test this empirically, you know, using data going back to the 1800s, higher inflation begets higher inflation volatility, higher inflation volatility begets higher nominal and real economic output vol- volatility and real nominal, real economic growth. And as a function of those two things, again, higher inflation, vol, higher re- uh, growth fall you wind up with lower multiples in risk assets. And so that's sort of your general playbook. When you're in a higher inflation regime, understand you're going to have more volatility. It's going to be harder to forecast both growth and inflation. And as a function of that, investors are going to assign lower multiples to risk assets, generally speaking. And more importantly, uh, high inflation regimes tend to have a positive covariance with uh, with uh, equity vol. That, that threshold is somewhere around 4%, actually, um, going back to what we discussed earlier. Um, and so understanding kind of those kind of overarching guide signposts will help you generally kind of 
understand the amount of risk you're taking. Cause I think there's two answers to your question, Jack, which is what do you buy and sell an inflation regime, but also how much do you buy and sell of it? You know, when you're in this disinflationary regime that we're exiting uh, that we exited, you could argue, you know, kind of in 2021, which is, Hey man, Fed's got your back. You can be long risk. Hell, you can be long levered risk at, you know, long period for long periods of time, you know, throughout, throughout and across market cycles. Because again, the, the general trend, the path of least resistance over a long time horizon is up when you're in a disinflation regime and the Fed has kind of got the, you know, they got the wind at your uh, back from a from Fed policy perspective. Clearly that's not the case. I think 2022 has proven that really pick your asset class. You might make the case that 2021 started to prove it as well. But when you're in a higher inflation regime, the, 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 the wind is at your face. You know, you have a headwind as an investment perspective. So you probably should be, you know, having less gross exposure on to asset markets in general. Because again, you're going to be experiencing higher realized volatility across asset classes, again, both equities and fixed income and equity like instruments, crypto, uh, commodities, et cetera. And so that's a general thing. Cash is king when you have higher volatility. Um, the average person will tell you, well, it's inflation's uh, 8%. So you're going to lose 8% of your money. Well, I'll tell you, that's better than losing 25% of your money. You know, it's not like you have good choices. Inflation is not good. You know, unless you're along the thing that's causing the inflation at the right time, obviously people have learned the hard way this year that, you know, just because we're in an inflationary regime doesn't mean you can be constantly be long inflation. You know, we've had significant drawdowns and things like crude oil and energy, ag, industrial metals, et cetera, you know, from their uh, respective highs this year. So, um, so, to, you know, kind of drilling down underneath it all in terms of what do you want to be long, obviously commodities as an asset class is going to be the, the, the solution, the answer to this over a long period of time and commodity linked equities. Now, the problem with that is again, there's a, those are incredibly volatile asset classes and the more sort of, I wouldn't say esoteric, but the more specialized you get, i.e. going from, you know, wheat to corn or, you know, base, uh, nickel to palladium, the more specialized you get in terms of attacking, you know, the commodity exposure, the more volatility you're going to experience. And so it kind of, you know, begs the, the it, it kind of leads you to, 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 uh, to a place where you know, if you're going to be having broader commodity exposure, you're either going to want that in a basket type uh, exposure, or you're going to want that in kind of a managed account type exposure, i.e. like an alternative asset manager who knows what the hell they're doing in terms of managing uh, uh, drawdown risk in, in that space. So to me, I think uh, it, we, we kind of talked about, you know, 60, 40, right? Uh, you know, this concept of 60, 40, to me, I think the number one, I think we're all going to end this decade as investors with the concept of 60, 30, 10. Like it's just, you, you gotta make room for alternative assets, you know, namely physical and digital commodities at the expense of the fixed income. Because again, the ex ante returns for not, both stocks and bonds, to be quite frankly, are going to be lower than they have been, um, in the in most recent era. And so I think that's, you know, this concept of 60, 30, 10, we're trying to popularize here at 42 macro. And again, I think by the end of the decade, it'll be kind of, you know, consensus across wall street. Yeah, and to your point on commodities, I think commodities are probably maybe the number one asset class that needs some sort of systematic or quantitative process tied to it. Because when you don't want to own commodities, you really do not want to own commodities. Um, you know, as we saw a period, you know, in that decade where they did really poorly. I mean, it can be, you know, commodities can be a really bad thing to own at the wrong time. Yeah, and 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 they're and they're 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 extremely like not mean reverting. I don't know, I'm sorry, they're they're extremely stochastic and they can can be mean reverting. But when they stop going mean reverting and they just start going down. They will go down for years. Like, like there, you don't get a chance to get out when you suffer a drawdown in commodities and the cycle turns against you, unlike equities, which, you know, you got a whole community of people who's trained to buy cheap stocks, right? So you get these opportunities, you get these bounces in the stock market. You don't get those bounces in wheat and palladium. You know, like if, if palladium goes no bit, it just, it, it's going to lose 50% of its value and stay down for several years. You know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the kind of risk you're exposing yourself to. Uh, in the commodity space. So again, it's, it's a, it's a higher volatility asset class, but again, it's one of the most obvious expressions of trying to take advantage of a higher inflation environment, not necessarily because commodities have to go up when inflation is high. It's just that you're probably going to have, you know, more volatility in other asset classes, which will, you know, just from a VAR perspective, is going to cause a lot of investors take to take down their risk to things like fixed income and equities at the margins of for a sustained period of time. And they're going to be looking for other avenues to park that capital. And I do believe uh, strongly that physical and digital commodities, you know, like Bitcoin, et cetera, are going to be very big beneficiaries of that from a structural perspective. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be long these things every time, right? You know, we've seen, again, 20 plus, 30 plus percent drawdowns in ag, energy, uh, industrial metals, 
70, 60 to 70% drawdowns in Bitcoin, Ethereum. So clearly at every interval of the market cycle, you don't need to be long these things, but just in terms from a, a strategic asset allocation perspective, you shouldn't be sort of blindly rebalancing into 60, 40 at every drawdown in this year. You should be thinking about how does that 60, 40 go to 60, 30, 10 over time, in my opinion. Going back to equities, how do you think about valuation when you build your portfolio? So, so guys like me have been talking about like, you know, high valuations and low expected returns on equities for a really long time. And, you know, to be honest, we were wrong for a long time and then maybe we were a little bit right, but how do you think about, you know, valuation is so tough from a timing perspective. Like, does that play a role in your process? Not really. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm cognizant of valuation, like from a perspective of overall market risk. Uh, but generally speaking, like to me, I think valuation is, you know, it, it's more of an opinion, right? Like if something you can empirically observe, Hey, this on this particular valuation metric, something is very high because it's in the hundred or 90th to hundred percentile of its historical time horizon. But does that necessarily take into account all the factors of why, you know, this, this time series itself could be stationary and non-stationary, right? Like something like the PE multiple of the equity market, in my opinion, it should not be this like stationary thing. If you're in an environment where interest rates are continuing to fall, the Fed's balance sheet is continuing to expand. It should have a positive upward slope, right? In my opinion. So I think when you think about valuation, I think when you kind of think about it in isolation away from other macro variables, like the cost of money, you know, the, 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 the level and, 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 and kind of strength in us dollar or vice versa. You know, those kinds of things really matter in terms of understanding valuation. I'm not sure that the average investor factors that in, you know, when they think about valuation is, Hey, what is the company a, or, um, you know, uh, the country a going to do from a policy or earnings perspective. And then let me kind of look at the multiple relative to some unit of comps and, or sort of, sort of some, uh, you know, so, so, you know, some, some group of comparables and is this cheap? Is it expensive? What's, what's the valuation on a longer term time horizon? Is it cheap or expensive? And at the end of the day, you're not answering the real questions, which is. What are the conditions that caused XYZ valuation to happen? And are those conditions sustainable? And if they're not sustainable, when are they going to change? And what's going to cause them to change? That is how you should be approaching the concept of valuation, in my opinion, which again, I think we're doing all that stuff and just stopping shy of the actual valuation component, because to me, I think it's the least relevant piece of information in that entire kind of discussion. Yeah. You know, evaluation is tough, both from the perspective that can be wrong for really long periods of time, but also to your point, like, let's say I even think, you know, the cape ratio is going to, you know, mean revert. What is it going to mean revert to? Is it going to mean revert to the hundred year average or the last 40 years where it's been way above average? Like, which one are we going to? It's, it's, it's very, very hard to use this for any kind of practical investment implications. hundred percent, man. I say this all the time. One of my favorite sayings is average is one of the most dangerous words in finance, especially when you're talking about valuation, right? Because the, oh, well, some things that, oh, like we've heard this, this year, like, oh, stock market's back at its, you know, average valuation for one, the, the, you hear these nonsensical stories from financial media, it's like one average of what duration, right? You know, they don't even tell you what duration they're looking at in the damn story. But two, it's like, when you pull up a time series, particularly valuation-based time series, they spend literally no time at the average. Like the average is like, it's a, it's a, it's a statistical concept. It's not an empirical thing. It's not real. It's just something you've just determined is, you know, is the average based on whatever sample you selected. And so this concept that something is cheap when it gets to average or something is uh, very cheap, or sorry, cheap when it gets to average or cheap when it gets, you know, a standard deviation oversold in terms of the sample, there's sampling bias associated with that, you know, kind of decision you're making. So it, and not only is there sampling bias associated with that decision in terms of the time horizon you're looking at, but there's also sort of, you know, kind of cognitive bias associated with not paying attention to why valuation got to the place it got to in the first place and the sustainability of those drivers. Yeah, my, my favorite example of that average thing is, you know, the market has an 8 to 12% average return over time, and it almost never has an 8 to 12% return. Um, Thank God for somebody to say that. Yeah. yeah. Just a couple more before I hand it back to Justin. Um, one is this is sort of outside of your 42 macro framework, but I'm wondering, do you do any startup investing, any venture, like private equity? Do you any, any, do any kind of that, that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, I run all my liquid net worth with the 42 macro portfolio construction process. But I also have a pretty sizable investment in, in, a, in a company, a tech company that my friend uh, owns and operates. And my last one before I hand it back is, you know, you're, you're kind of unique in the way we are and that we, you run a business in the investment industry. Um, and I always think about that in terms of building my personal portfolio. And I guess since you're using a systematic framework, it doesn't really apply as much. But, you know, I always think about, you know, should I be taking less risk in my personal portfolio because I have so much tied to the market in terms of the actual value of our business and my income and stuff like that? So I'm wondering how you think that through. I guess your process sort of handles that itself, but I'm just wondering how you think that through. 
No, man, I say lean in, dude. <laughs> You're good at this. You take advantage of your skill set. You don't, I mean, you don't think Dr. Dre listens to Dr. Dre's Snoop Dogg music? You know, like, like, of course he does, you know, like, yeah, if you're good at something, take advantage of it, you know, it'd be preposterous to, to not take advantage of, of your skill set. If, if, if you have a good skill set, obviously, you know, you're talented at what you do. So I say lean in. I mean, hell, I'm, I'd spend 15, 16 hours sitting in this chair every day. Might as well take advantage of that output. So, um, you know, if you're not, again, I'm a big believer in eating what you cook, whether if you're a cook or a macro risk manager like myself. At the end of the day, like if, if you're doing something, you know, the, these are my hands. This is the work that I'm uh, doing with my hands. If I don't feel comfortable living in a house that I built, I shouldn't probably have any of my customers living in that house at the end of the day. And this, this, I guess, relates to, let's build off of that a little bit, because we had Jim Wachowski on the podcast. He talked about like two failure points for investors. One, a strategy can deviate from the market and an investor can make a bad decision at getting out of a bad strategy or two. The market goes down, you know, whatever, 30, 40%, and they sell at the wrong time. So I'm wondering, you know, I don't think your investment strategy or your personal portfolio probably would have that type of max drawdown based on what you're, how you're explaining it, but it probably can deviate a lot from like the broader market or the 60, 40 portfolio. I mean, you're in there, you've, you've created it, you believe in it. So you're going to stick with it, but. For others where this might be a little bit complex or a little bit like maybe, maybe if they have in their portfolio, this is like a 40% allocation that they're allocated to something like this. It might not be the entire thing, but the strategy goes through like a tough five or even 10 year period. How would you advise those types of investors to make it through? Is it just you've got to believe in the strategy? It's built on, you know, long-term data and it's built on managing risk. I mean, what would you say to that? Well, my, I mean, if I, if I can't generate returns over a long period of time, I just suck at my job at the end of the day, right? You know, there is a human being making subjective decisions at, at, you know, a critical point in the process, which is, you know, once we get to the place where we understand the relative units and expected risk and the expected reward, there is still a human being saying, well, you know, let's say, uh, for instance, go back to pick on crude oil. Crude oil might have a very similar kind of return profile as cotton. Well. I feel like I know more about crude oil, so I'm going to be, you know, I'd rather be long crude oil than cotton because, you know, cotton, there's a lot more kind of open the envelope risk because of my lack of understanding of what drives the cotton market. So there is subjectivity to that in terms of, um, you know, understanding like, you know, just which risk am I, is, is Darius Dale comfortable taking, comfortable explaining to his customers and clients um, in terms of that. So there is that, that process, part of the process in terms of like managing drawdowns and like trying to avoid like, you know, um, how do you respond to these kinds of big drawdowns? And no, no, so not even drawdowns, a uh, big sort of tracking area relative to 60-40 or relative to uh, S&P. I mean, that's by design. As I mentioned, look, again, the goal for this portfolio was 7 to 10% returns compounded. Now, of course, you know, I say that out loud and I'm going to get sued for not delivering 7 to 10% returns compounded for the next 30 years. Obviously, I'm joking, but you know, that's my, that's my personal goal. So when I make decisions in the 42 macro portfolio construction, you know, our customers and clients understand, hey, look, this is what I'm trying to achieve. You know, there again, as I mentioned, there, you know, there are times to be long, you know, tons of crypto and tons of this and tons of that. And ultimately that'll feed into the kind of rolling average return over time. But there's also times to not be long to anything. I mean, we at different points of this year, you know, we were in 60, 70, 50, 60% cash different points of this year, you know, and, and the whole goal of that was to, was to create tracking error with the 60, 40 portfolio, which I think is down somewhere like 20% year to date. We're up a percent. It's not anything to write home about, but I'm, I'm very glad about that tracking error because it was deliberate and it was by design. Now, the goal, obviously, if I'm doing my job right, is to when we get to a better, you know, more kind of comfortable place to invest from a, from a capital appreciation perspective, that we, you know, with that tracking error gets minimized. You know, when we do want to take equity and, 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 and fixed income risk, um, you know, on, on the long side, minimize that tracking error, start to participate more, start to get some up capture. But right now we're really focused on preventing that, you know, limiting that down capture issue. When you think about your own portfolio, I don't know how long you've actually been deploying your own strategy with your own assets, but you know, when you think about your whole entire investing history, are there any big mistakes that jump out at you just because we can learn a lot from our mistakes. So we'd like to ask like what mishaps maybe have you made along the way that have kind of got where you are today with your investment? Yeah, there's a couple of things like, uh, one, don't trade short-term options unless you're really effing good at short-term options, which there's probably, I don't know, several thousand people on earth who, who can do that well. <laughs> and most people listening to this podcast are not among that several thousand. You know, it's an easy way to lose a ton of money. 
Um, you know, just it, it's a, I, <laughs> I joke and say like the short-term options are like the, the capital graveyard. If you, if you want to leave some flowers at the capital graveyard, definitely trade as many short-term options you want. So that's kind of like one uh, lesson I've learned, which is just, you know, stay out of that because you're, you're, you're probably have less edge than you think you do. Um, two, uh, just sort of, you know, a lot of times where I'm trying to, I, I think about risk in terms of, oh, this is something I've had to learn the hard way, which is kind of thinking about risk at the individual factor exposure level and not really understanding how, you know, eliminating this particular risk might affect the overall performance of the portfolio. For instance, you know, like, hey, I'm going to stop myself out of position A, B, or C. And then once I stop myself out of position A, B, or C, let's say that was an inopportune time to stop out, right? Now, the whole entire portfolio is not generating the kind of return that I wanted to because I've taken, you know, this particular portion of, of, of the return strategy out, right? It's like, imagine trying to play a football game and you, you sell up, you bench all your wide receivers. Well, you're probably not going to be able to pass the ball very well, right? And so that's kind of the, 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 the kind of key takeaway from that lesson, which is when you make changes at the factor exposure level, not just understand how this is going to eliminate a return or create a new, you know, if you're adding something, adding a new return stream into the portfolio construction, but also understand how it may impact the overall portfolio construction in terms of, you know, kind of what your medium term objectives are. You know, I think that's something that's a, that's a lesson I've had to learn uh, over the years. I'm trying to think of something else, uh, you know, everything else is, you know, just learning from everyone else's mistakes. You know, you gotta be a student of, of, of investing a student in economic history to do this job well. Um, to really just, you know, and, 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 you know, fortunately, you know, you have services like yours and mine, uh, to teach investors, you know, to kind of help us, you know, cause again, it's not just, I'm making all the mistakes. We've all made mistakes and we're all learning from each other's mistakes, which is how we get investing podcasts, investing services, investing books. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say anything else on top of that stuff. I think that's a good point though. When you take something out of the portfolio, you know, you're taking out something and you're, you might be adding risk here without even really knowing that. Totally. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to think about it. Um, just one, uh, last one on this run here. Do you, um, at all like view your current housing or anything with real estate as part of your overall portfolio, or do you kind of chunk that onto a separate thing? Like a lot of people view their houses, it's not an investment. They live in it, or maybe they don't, don't even own a house. Maybe they rent. Is there anything there that you think about? No, I, I, I think about that as, as, as just a separate bucket. Yeah. So when I, when I say, uh, when I'm talking portfolio construction, that's pure liquid net worth, you know, not even including, um, you know, kind of alternative investments like, you know, venture capital, et cetera, housing. As we get to the end of these, we always like to ask a question that kind of gets this idea that, you know, all investments that are good investments don't necessarily make money. And so the, the example I always give for myself is, you know, I own a racing sailboat and a racing sailboat is a horrific investment. I mean, the, the thing just burns money, but like, I've gotten a lot of joy out of it. I get to go out with my friends and have a beer. You know, it's something I've gotten a lot of value from in my life. And, and I'm wondering if you have anything like that in your life where maybe it's not the greatest financial investment, but it's something you, you think has been a great investment. Well, it's funny you say that. I, I, prior to COVID, I would have said my car. I have a, I have a uh, Maserati Levante. And I was like, you know, I'm like, this thing is going to lose money, but I love driving it. It's a, a freaking beautiful, uh, awesome vehicle. I love Maserati and that brand. But, uh, you know, prior to COVID, you know, used car prices didn't go up. <laughs> so, you know, so now I can actually make money on this thing if I sold it. But no, it's, uh, um, you know, the, the, generally speaking, no. I mean, at the end of the day, like, this goes back to our first discussion, right? It just understand your investment objectives, understand your life objectives. You know, that Maserati has nothing to do with my investments. I just enjoy driving the car because it's really cool and it's fun to drive. That, you know, I'm not, I don't think about that car when I think about, you know, making an allocation or, or portfolio construction change. So no, the answer to that is no. But again, just understand yourself, understand your limits, understand your limitations, understand that you're a human with behavioral heuristics and you're probably going to be prone to making errors. And so what you're trying to do as an investor is take your mind off of constantly doing things for success and really refocus your mind on constantly trying to eliminate the tails of non-success. And I think if you do that, you, you know, you're going to be left with a bunch of stuff that's, you know, kind of generally, you know, kind of making money and compounding returns, which is ultimately the, the, the goal. At least that's my goal. That's great. And, uh, we like to ask sort of, sort of a standard closing question, which that answer might fit perfectly into what I'm going to ask you here. So if it does, that's completely fine. But. If you could impart one lesson that you've learned from building your personal portfolio to the average investor, what would that be? Ooh, this is a good, good, good question. Good question. I would say, you know, risk, risk happens really quickly. And so, you know, when you get yourself into a bad situation, what people tend to do is they start risk managing their P and L. They try, they start looking for, you know, ways to get out of positions, levels to get out of positions and, and, um, you know, they start sort of 
they start playing doctor. They're, you know, they're sort of in triage, right? And the reality is usually when those, when you're in those moments, that's usually the market giving you new information about the evolving distribution of probable economic and policy outcomes. And so in that moment, your focus should not be in playing triage in your current holdings, but more importantly, trying to understand, holy shit, something, sorry for the language, something must be changing really quickly and really meaningfully from a, from a macro and, and, and policy catalyst perspective that I need to really focus a lot of my attention on that. And once you do that, then you can go back to playing triage or whatever version of triage you need to play based on that new information. To me, I see it all the time. Like even I, I feel it as a human being, you know, when I have a you know bad run, I had a crappy job. We were having a phenomenal year up uh, double digits, I think in, in mid June. And now we're up low single digits, right? You know, they had a significant drawdown in July. The market went straight up and we were, you know, called call Ned short uh, throughout that, throughout that month. And you know, the entire time I was constantly having to fight myself from just playing triage and stopping myself out and stopping myself out. And what I really focused myself on, I spent a lot of extra time just trying to understand, okay, what's driving this? How sustainable is this? And ultimately there were some very positive fundamental drivers. We don't have to go into that in this particular podcast, but you know, there were some very positive fundamental drivers. And so at the end of the day, as a portfolio construction, from, from the perspective of the portfolio construction, you did have to make a few minor changes. Now we're still leaning that short, you know, the market, but we had to make some adjustments based on the specific factors we were along because the probability of, of outcome ABC, we don't have to get into the details, actually rose. And so to me, that's a great example of, okay, let's just not play triage. Let's actually do the work in understanding why we need to play triage in the first place, because in those moments, usually you're getting some very significant, meaningful changes in the kind of the macro drivers. Darius, this has been great. Not everyone is comfortable coming on and talking about their own personal investments. I think the nice thing with your situation is your investments are aligned with your, you know, the strategy that you follow day in and day out and that you um, share with your subscribers. So if people want to learn more about on uh, your macro approach to investing, where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it again. Thanks for having me. And uh, good, always a pleasure to connect with you guys and uh, connect with your audience. So uh, definitely come check us out at 42 Macro. As I mentioned, you know, we help investors construct portfolios, think about asset allocation on a uh, cyclical and strategic basis, you know, across, you know, a variety of different firms and firm sizes. You know, as I mentioned, you know, we have some of the world's most respected uh, institutions who are uh, subscribed in our clients. And we have, you know, retail investors, high net worth individuals, RAs, et cetera. As I mentioned, you know, you, if you're investing, I say this all the time, if you're investing at all in capital markets, you are making macro bets. You might not have a process to make macro bets and you might be deliberately putting blinders on a lot, you know, venture capital, angel investing, et cetera, but you are still making a macro bet. So you might as well educate yourself on some of these critical macro factors and cycles that matter. So you can ultimately make better macro bets, you know, because uh, burying your head in the sand is not a, uh, it's not a solution in my opinion. Great. Thank you, Darius. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. Justin Jack, thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbonell. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.